If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians 4, please. Ephesians chapter 4, we are intentionally hammering upon each one of the five offices that Jesus Christ has gifted the body of Christ with. And he has a reason why he's doing this. Now, we're not to that point yet, but what we want to understand is that the church has not been left to just flounder in the wind. In fact, he's given five offices that are centered around one thing, and that is God's word, period. If you have any of these five offices that are centered around something other than upholding God's word, ministering God's word, standing for God's word, relying upon God's word, encouraging in God's word, they are not fit for that office, and they should be dismissed. That's how seriously I believe that the Lord takes this. Because we have a lot of abuse of these opportunities today. Now, if you have your bulletin, you can easily pull out and you'll find this little chart. I don't know if it'd be helpful. Some of us learn a little bit differently than others. Sometimes it's helpful to have something visually in front of us. Now, if you came and you've only got one bulletin, you can raise your hand. And we actually have some charts back there that we only stuffed one in each bulletin but we have some spares out there if you'd like to get one does anybody want one that does not have one okay should be back there by sandy zach is way quicker than i and so it works out better But what I want you to notice is what we've covered so far, and I've filled it in for you to kind of give you an idea of what might most help you. If you find a better way to do it, fantastic, that's great. But at first we looked at the idea of apostles. Apostles mean to be sent out, and it was actually used in secular Greek of ships that had authority to accomplish a mission before them. We've given the relevant scripture passages that we covered. The idea of what does it involve regarding the word and the issues of where abuse of this could happen. And what we identified was is the idea of not having a closed canon. What that means is a canon is a measurement that has taken place. So when we say that the New Testament is a closed canon, we mean that God is not adding to the book of Revelation to have further revelation with which to instruct us and encourage us. We believe that it's closed. And because it's closed, we see that particular office, that foundational office of apostle, passing off of the scene and ending with the Apostle John, who was the last of the twelve to pass away. We also see, are they, are they here today or not? No, they're passed away. What's the unique feature? Well, <clears throat> something interesting that we noticed was it was an office that was held by males only, but it was used mainly of the twelve throughout the Scriptures. Though others in the Scriptures are called apostles in passing, probably the most famous of which we know would be the Apostle Paul. The second group that we looked at last week were prophets. Prophets is the idea of a proclaimer of the divine matters known by special revelation. There's the scriptures that we looked at that were relevant. And the issue that we come under here is inerrancy. There are many people that want to promote the idea of, well, the Bible is not God's word. The Bible just contains God's word. If you ever hear that, it's because they have been indoctrinated 
to believe that you can fudge on certain parts of the Scripture. Jesus was very clear. Not one jot or tittle will pass away. All of it, from the smallest mark, the smallest vowel, the, every word of the originals that was given, all of it has been breathed out by God. All of it is inspired. If we have a Bible that has errors in it, then we have a God that has errors in Him. That is the ramifications of this idea. God is now full of contradiction. He doesn't really mean what He says. Therefore, we can't really trust Him anyway. Dangerous. Dangerous ground to tread on. And if that's the case, then the death of Christ was needless. Because how can you trust God? Everything that Jesus was sent to do, He was sent to do for the Father, right? How can you trust that God's mission was authentic in any way? You can't. So, so many things pour out of the idea of prophets abusing this ministry or people taking up the mantle of prophet who have no business with it. Instead, we find that they served a particular purpose, either to bring forth God's word in a foretelling situation, events that haven't happened yet, or a forth-telling situation, what God has already documented and it being reiterated for the exhortation and the building up and the consolation of believers. So this office has passed away. When God speaks, He speaks without error. His word is established. What we saw here that was unique about this was that females are very much included. In fact, we're going to look at Philip today. He had four daughters that were prophetesses. Fantastic. Anybody here got four daughters? No one? Anybody got three daughters? Okay, can you imagine if they could foretell what was going to happen next? How would that work out in your household? Be an interesting place, wouldn't it? Anyway, think on that later. Probably motivate your prayer life. It's interesting. There's no specified group like the 12 in this situation either. You actually found that it had a much broader array. But what we find is, is that if God still has something else to say as far as foretelling events of the future, then the Bible is not a complete situation. We don't have it all here. And therefore, we are inadequate in some way. We find that the Scriptures teach us much much differently. Today we're going to look at the idea of apostles. I want us to go back to verse 7 in chapter 4 of Ephesians and get this. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. This grace is some sort of help that's been put forward. And we're going to find that in context, this is speaking of the offices that have been given to the church. The measure of Christ's gift is the Holy Spirit. That is Christ's gift. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to go ask of the Father, and He will come to you. It's actually to your advantage that I go away so that the Comforter, the Helper, the Advocate will come. Why is that? Because when the Holy Spirit comes, He indwells every believer. Therefore, every believer has divine assistance ready to lead us and guide us into all truth and comfort us in any calamity at all time. We are never apart from the Lord ever. So this is a beautiful gift that Christ gives. He manifests this in a special way through the offices. And so we talk about that He descended to the earth, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, all these things speak a spiritual victory to principalities, powers, demons, to want to think that they have a say, they have control, they're going to exercise their authority over the nations. And Jesus says, no, what actually has happened is the lighting of the fuse to where I'm going to take away everything that you think that you possess, and we're going to bring it all back under the headship of God. That's what we're going to do. So Christ's 
mission is already victorious and it's playing itself out. How is this going to be accomplished? Because in verse 10, it says, He who descended to the earth, that's Christ, is himself also the one who ascended far above all the heavens. That's a place of high ranking. Why? Now watch this. Here's the reason. So that he might fill all things. That's what these offices do. These offices, since they're centered around the word, have something to dispense for the betterment of the church. In doing so, Christ is accomplishing his desires through you and through me. So we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He sets up by his grace these offices that are gifts to the church. They minister forward God's word so that you and I would be changed into the image of Christ. Our minds would be transformed according to his word and we would be able to live out the Christ life for this dead world to see it. In fact, we're even told in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit is even able to give life to our mortal bodies. That means this flesh that we constantly fight against, the more that we lean into the Spirit and the more that we are trusting and banking all of our hopes, we're cleaving to God's Word. He can actually bring our flesh into submission under His headship. Because he starts to become Lord of these areas of our life. And what he says has the ultimate authority in how we're making decisions. Next thing you know, we're just radiating glory for this world to see. Now, I don't know about you, but I want more of that. I want all of that. A life that is lived by a Christian that is not going to reflect the Lord Jesus Christ is seldom a happy one. In fact, never a happy one. So this idea is what God is doing to set all of us up for success. Now, when we get to this idea of evangelist, some of us take a deep breath, we go, here it comes. Some of us say, oh no. What bothers me is there's only three verses in all of God's word that deal with this word evangelist. There's a lot of evangelism that goes on. But there's only three verses that deal with this. So here we see verse 11. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets. Remember, those were grouped together in the book of Ephesians, and they're foundational, and they are revealing God's word. And they're also part of these fivefold gifts, offices, to the church. But then you have the evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. The evangelists. The other place where we see this is in Acts chapter 21, if you want to write it down. I don't want you to turn there right now, but Acts chapter 21. Go back to the scripture verses. There you go. Acts chapter 21. There you go. On the next day, this is Luke writing, we left and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, one of the seven that was chosen earlier in Acts for the distribution of food amongst the widows in the church, We stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. So he had settled in Caesarea. That's a place we're going to look at his life a little bit today to understand a little bit more about that. But that's only the second place where this is mentioned as evangelists. The next one is found in Timothy, one of the pastoral epistles. He says, this is Paul's command, but you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. Now, if you know anything about Timothy, Timothy was sent 
to the church in Ephesus. Interesting how that correlates together. Even though Paul had spent three years of his ministry there, Ephesus was having a lot of problems. They had a lot of outside influences that were trying to come in. There was a lot of temple worship there. In fact, it's believed that the modern abuse of what we know as speaking in tongues actually originated in the temple of Diana that was there in the city of Ephesus. And so you had all kinds of crazy, worldly, other God-like practices that were being infiltrated into the church and Paul sent Timothy there in order to straighten all of these things out and he tells him, of all the things that you do in your ministry, one of the things you need to do is keep sharing the gospel. Now, I'm elated and I love how God sets it up. I actually had the opportunity to share the gospel twice with people yesterday. It was fantastic. It was great. Love the look on people's faces. You start talking about hell, gosh, people freak out. Don't leave it out. It's part of it, is it not? He who believes is not condemned. But he who does not believe is what? Condemned already. Sounds like they need to know where the future vacation spot is and if they would like to rearrange their itinerary. Yes? Very important. Now, I'm trying to bring a bit of humor to this, but let's be honest. The lake of fire is not a joke. It wasn't created for people. It was created for Satan and all of these false gods that are deceiving people and deceiving nations and throwing us into wars and killing children and all this other stuff that we're having issues with and seeing injustices in our life today. But the fact is, is people choose to go to hell when they regret, or sorry, not regret, deny the free offer of salvation. Let's get that really clear. God does not send anyone to hell. People choose to go there when they do not believe in Jesus Christ. We have to think about this. What more does God have to do in order to make salvation available? Here's what He won't do. He won't make you believe. He leaves that up to you. He leaves that decision up to you. Now, here's why everybody loves the idea of, okay, so these are offices. They're gifts to the church. In the gift office, one of them is an evangelist. And we wipe our brows and we go, we need to hire that person. Right? Why? So that someone will share the gospel. Let's go to the next one, Dave. Here's a fun fact if you want to write it down. Fun fact. A little ahead of me. Here you go. The Bible never, never, in fact, I ran out of room to put it, but I'll go ahead and tell you. Never, ever, 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 never, never, never. It never speaks of the spiritual gift of evangelism. You talk to somebody about sharing Christ, well, you don't understand. I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism. I love it because I say, you know what, I don't either. I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism because there's not one. There is a mandate from Jesus Christ for me to go into all the world and to preach the gospel and make disciples. That's what I have. And I have that in light of His authority. That's what I have. I have marching orders. I don't need a gift to tell the truth. I already have the Holy Spirit. He's going to lead me into all truth. He's going to open the doors. He's already convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So when I say I don't have the gift of evangelism, it comes from either one of two places. And I'm not trying to be harsh. It either comes from an ignorance of the Scriptures of knowing that there's not a gift of evangelism 
Or it comes from the idea of, I am looking for whatever trapdoor possible to get out of this very uncomfortable situation because I'm not obeying my Lord, and that's honestly what's going on. That's what it boils down to. Now, is my goal guilt today? No. My goal is to encourage you to share the gospel and to be anticipating that the Holy Spirit would open those doors for you. It's not like it's something that Christ doesn't want you to do, right? I don't really don't care if you share the gospel. It's deep on his heart. The whole reason why he died is so that we would have something to tell dying people. What other message are we going to give them? There's a lot of things that Christians are telling people. Our job is to preach Christ crucified. Well, I'm not a preacher. You don't have to be. You just have to communicate to them. And make sure that you have the gospel clear. If it's something that can't easily coincide with John 3.16, you have the gospel wrong. God loves the world. He sent His Son. He's the one who, who puts forward the means of reconciliation. Whoever believes in Him, get that straight. Don't let somebody think it's behaves. Get their actions and their get your act together and stuff out of the way. They can't save themselves. They'll never save themselves. Whoever believes in Him will not perish. What is that? Lake of fire. But has eternal life. How long is eternal life? Man, praise God. And you can reassure them that. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, whom God sent for you because He loved you so much, you have eternal life. Don't put doubts in there. Don't stop and feel their pulse to make sure if they're really alive in Christ. And what I mean by going around inspecting all their fruit. You want to do that? Go to Walmart. They need the fruit inspector over there. Anybody bought fruit from Walmart lately? Just saying. So here's the thing. The Bible speaks of the spiritual office of the evangelist. And that might be a point we want to pray about as a church. I believe that every local church should have an evangelist. I know of some. Billy Graham's busy right now, worshiping Jesus, so he's not available. You might know somebody who's an evangelist. I have a good friend of mine who's actually starting over at Ethnos 360 this month. He's an evangelist. He has no problem sharing the gospel with anybody. He just doesn't care. And he just loves Jesus that much. Church, we need an evangelist. What do we hire you for? Mm, I'm next week. Right? That's a beautiful thing. But here's the thing. According to what Paul told Timothy, am I to do my work as an evangelist? Am I? Yes. I have a mandate just as a believer in God, just as a child of God, to share Christ. Every believer in Christ has the ministry of reconciliation. You don't have to turn there, but let me share this passage with you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us, that's you's and me's. He reconciled us to Himself. How? Through Christ. And then what did He do? He gave us something. The ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Who's he after? Who's God after? Everyone. That's why he sent someone who was able to pay everyone's debt. Everyone. He's after everyone. He's after everyone and he supplied the means to happen. How's he going to get them? You and me. Every single person is a candidate for salvation. Well, you don't know what they did. 
No, but God does, and He still died for them. He still loves them. No one is too far for the arm of God to reach. His grace is sufficient. And regardless of who it is, maybe it's you today, you will never out God's grace. Your sin will never stretch as far as God's grace does. It is infinite. He loves people. He wants people. So it says here, notice he was not counting their trespass against them. Why? Because Christ died for it. And he committed to us the word of reconciliation. Next verse. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We are his mouthpiece to the world to share the gospel. We beg, the word you is not in the original, we beg on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We beg people. We beg them. God makes his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. Come back into the relationship you were always meant to be in. Always. That responsibility, that ministry has been entrusted to us. Now, what is an evangelist? Here's a definition. A proclaimer of the gospel. It really is that simple. An evangelist is someone who proclaims the gospel. It's someone who's a bringer of good tidings. And I thought this was interesting. This was brought up. I don't know if I agree with it now that I'm thinking about it more. This name is given in the New Testament to those heralds of salvation through Christ who are not apostles. Possibly. I don't know that we have to split hairs on that. But the fact is, is it's somebody who wants to share Christ. Who wants to bear good news. Let's look at someone who's amazing. Let's look at Philip. Turn with me to Acts 8. Go ahead and set the scene for you. They were having favoritism being exercised in the church. The Hebrew widows, those from Hebrew descent as part of the church, were getting a daily distribution of food. The Hellenistic widows, those who were considered Gentiles or from Greek origin, were being overlooked and there was favoritism going on in the church. And so the apostles had to set down what they were doing and ministering God's word and they had to start making sure that distribution of food was being handled fairly amongst all the widows that the church was caring for. Well, because they had to neglect the word, things started to get real wobbly. And so they had seven men that were chosen and put into place, is probably the calling of the first deacons, in in order to oversee the physical ministries going on within the church so that they could go back to praying and ministering God's word to the people. That's what they were called to do. When this happened, Stephen was particularly notable and he rose to power and was actually brought before the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin for the idea of wanting to proclaim the gospel. And so Stephen held nothing back and he gave them a running history. And then he did what every good evangelist should do. He turned around and called them stiff-necked people who always resist the Holy Spirit. Now see, we get all fuzzy and care bears about our message sometimes, but sometimes people need to be told you are hard-headed and obstinate towards a gospel that will save you from an eternal destiny in hell. That's the fact of it. Let's stop apologizing for the repercussions of someone's personal actions. People choose to go there. We are trying to offer them the only salvation available. So with that happening, the people stopped their ears and picked up rocks and they beat Stephen to death. That's how people respond to the gospel. 
Now what this happens is, is it causes a dispersion to go on in the church. And so anybody who wasn't an apostle went out everywhere. And that's where we pick up in verse 4 of chapter 8. And I think it's interesting how this starts out. Because in this chapter, the idea of proclaiming the gospel is mentioned five times, more than any other chapter in the book of Acts. And here's where we see it really kick off. It's only brought up once beforehand. But the particular idea of what they're doing, preaching, the gospel. Look at Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now this is incredible. We know that just from Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were added to the church that day. You want to talk about a church growth strategy? It's just putting the word of God out there and looking for the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does. We don't need all this other garbage. So the Lord adds to the church in this. Now imagine, this persecution happens. Everybody but 12 people spread out. You have 3,000 people moving out. And what's the common denominator they all do? They're all going to go proclaim the gospel. Some of us want to look at the text and be like, did you not see what just happened to that guy? But why do you think it is that though they scatter, probably out of fear of that happening to them, notice they can't stop talking about what happened to them. Does everybody see that? They can't stop talking about Jesus Christ forgiving their sins completely and giving them eternal life that can never be lost. That's something worth telling other people. Why? Because they're candidates for it too. So when they're spread out, they go about preaching the word. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. We love those people. Why? Because everybody else hated them. And if Philip went to them, that means that whatever Philip's administering there is also good for me. You know what that tells us? That tells us that that person with that lip ring that just unnerves you to no end, they're a candidate for the gospel. It tells you that freaked out guy with purple hair that's all spiked across him, he's a candidate for the gospel. Tells you that dirty dude with tattoos is a candidate for the gospel. It tells you that that drug addict is not beyond reaching. It tells you that that porn addict is not beyond salvation. It tells you that it, no, it does not matter what heap of manure has been put upon you or what things you might find disagreeable in yourself and your upbringing. God loves every single person. There's not one person He doesn't love. Ezekiel chapter 18, I do not take pleasure in the death of any person. It grieves His heart. And so Jesus Christ is His solution. And Philip being dispersed, he's got to tell people. He's an evangelist. He fits this office perfectly. So he goes to Samaria, the place of half-breeds. Why not? They have beating hearts. They're human beings. Jesus died for people. That's where I'm going. And he began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard, notice that, that's how it comes about, and saw the signs which he was performing. And that's interesting because he's not an apostle, and yet he can still perform these signs in order to validate his message. Why is that? The reason why miraculous signs accompanied the preaching of the gospel in this first century opportunity is because they did not have the completed scriptures of the New Testament yet. And so you have God intervening and getting people's attention to show them God has put His stamp on this situation. Now, it says here, verse 7, 
For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. I should say so. What a miraculous evangelistic campaign. But notice that even though the signs are talked about, what's making the difference? The preaching of Christ. That's the difference. It says here, verse 9, Now there was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. So notice, he has miraculous works, but it's obvious that they're of a different nature. And they were all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This is, a, is, is what is called the great power of of God. So notice he had this strange reputation that somehow God's power was on him. Now watch this. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news, now stop for a second. Does everybody see that Simon was giving everybody an experience and something was concluded about him? Philip's method is different i'm going to preach the gospel and then there's going to be an experience that follows up in order to authenticate what i say it's not about experience and then message it's about message and then the experience that follows don't get those two messed up so notice but when they believed philip preaching the good news about number one notice what he talked about the kingdom of god now let me go ahead and step on that soapbox for a second we are not building the kingdom The kingdom is not here. We have nothing to do with building the kingdom. We are not furthering his kingdom. We're not doing any of those things. His kingdom is future. His kingdom is to come. The rejection of the Jews is a reason why this kingdom has been postponed. And so when we look forward to his coming, why do we look forward to his coming? Because with the coming of the king comes the kingdom. Should we dare think for a moment that the kingdom is here and the king is absent? That's not a kingdom. That's weird. I don't know what else to call it. So the kingdom is future. Notice that Philip is educating them about the future coming of Christ. That's what it has to deal with, the coming of the kingdom. But it's also about the name of Jesus Christ. Notice, they were being baptized, men and women alike. I love it. No discrimination. Remember the lady in Samaria? How is it that you, a Jew, come and talk to me, a Samaritan and a woman? She was mind blown that Jesus wanted a few moments of her time. That he was even bothering to open his mouth. What's great is, from having the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers that happened in Acts 2.42, all prejudice is out the window. Doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Philip's preaching to everybody. Why? Everybody's a candidate for salvation. Christ applies to everyone. Verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. Stop. Saved or unsaved? He's a saved man. Even he came to believe in Christ. Notice this. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, we're going to skip 14 through 24. You can read that on your own. But essentially what happens is is they send to Jerusalem and Peter and John come to check out the situation in Samaria. You can read that later. Go down to 25. So when they, Peter and John had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel 
to many villages of the Samaritans. Now here's the interesting thing. We know Peter and John were apostles. We don't know that they were evangelists, but we know it did not alleviate them from the responsibility of still sharing the gospel. They still had that responsibility. It says here, verse 26, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Now watch this. Spirit-led. Spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now why? Aren't things going well in Samaria? Aren't things booming? Aren't people getting saved? It seems like a church has started up. Hey, we just had Peter and John in from Jerusalem. Things are going great. Why would he want to leave now? Notice that Philip doesn't question the Spirit's direction. Just like whenever there were crowds and crowds of people, you would often see Jesus withdraw himself and get in a moment of solitude with his Father. Because the results are up to God anyway. We're called to be obedient, not to create the results. The results are not contingent upon me. What I'm to do is to be obedient, to to go where he tells us to go. It's the same for you. So the Spirit tells him, get up, go, from Jerusalem down into Gaza. Now, this is old school Philistine territory that's down here, okay? It's kind of a shaky place. You hear about Gaza today in the news, and you're like, man, what's going on over there? It's going crazy, right? Verse 27, so he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch. Now watch this, Ethiopian, so he's from the northern part of Africa. He's up there for a reason. Now watch this. He's a court official of Candace, they name him, and name his his queen, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Now stop for a second. Is this guy full of responsibility or what? He's obviously got a track record of being trustworthy. I mean, he's still alive, right? Obviously, he's got some sort of moral understanding of knowing who he serves, what's good, what's right, what's wrong. Thief, stop! I mean, that's all you got to do, right? But he's got obviously this built-up track record and a ton of responsibility that's been placed upon him. So he's not somebody who was just woefully lost, destitute, too stupid to understand anything, none of that stuff. Let's, Let's not play it down as this idea of everybody who's lost is just too dumb to know what's going on. This is somebody who was in a, in a really high-ranking position. Now, here's what's great about this. He came to Jerusalem to worship. Now, notice he's not a believer in Christ. But something still drew him there to try to get answers. He's there to worship Yahweh. He at least understands that. Verse 28. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, my question is, is how did he get a copy of the scroll of Isaiah? ChristianBook.com was not delivering to his chariot, right? Amazon Prime was not getting to him. But he's got a copy of this scroll. And we know he probably had a completed copy because we're going to see he was reading in chapter 53. So he's way down the scroll here. Now watch this. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Now I want to tell you this, and you can go ahead and commit me to the psychiatric ward, I don't care. The Spirit wants to put that on you today. The Spirit still wants to solidly impress upon believers in Christ to lead us into opportunities to tell the truth. Waiting for Him to open the door and supply the divine opportunity that God has been preparing all this time just so that you could come in and be a light bearer in this dark place. It's not any different. Let's not think for a moment that it is. So Philip, here's how you know he's an evangelist, verse 30. Philip did what? Ran! When's the last time you ran to share the gospel with somebody? Think about it. 
Lord, you want me to go there? Okay. Gone. Right? He ran. He ran up and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Real quick. That's a preacher's dream right there. Lost people reading the Bible? You're just sitting there salivating at it, okay? And he said, do you understand what you're reading? Notice it's a hermeneutics question. Verse 31, and he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And Philip said, praise Jesus! Unless someone guides me. Unless someone is able to take them by the hand to where they need to go. That's what evangelism is. You're taking someone who doesn't know their way and you are leading them to the ultimate and final destination at the feet of Christ. Unless someone guides me, how am I going to know what I'm reading? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture, what she was reading was this. Isaiah 53. Everybody know that one? Suffering servant. Right? We didn't esteem him. There was nothing good looking about Jesus. Now, telling us this 700 years before he showed up. We esteemed him stricken by his stripes. If you got the King James, by stripes we are healed. The transgression of us all fell upon him. Powerful chapter. In fact, if you're an evangelist, that's where you want a lost person to be. You're in Isaiah 53. Lord, this just got way easy. This is great. And look what it says. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate to his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. This is talking about substitutionary atonement. The fact that Jesus died in the place of sinners. Man, that's powerful. That's powerful. He says here, the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please, tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached. What? That's your message. That's the message of the evangelist. I'm here to preach Jesus. That's it. I'm here to talk about Christ and Him crucified. I'm talking about the Lamb that was slain. I'm talking about the great sacrifice that was put forward. I'm talking about the priest placing his hand on the Lamb and transferring the sin of the people to one who was innocent and that perfect Lamb being slayed. Why? So that the people could have this intimacy with their Creator. That's what he wants to talk about. And he wants to talk about the only one that could take care of the issue. Now, what is the word able to do? What's the main issue? If you're looking at your little chart here, what's the issue involving this? Dave, let's bring that up. What's the main issue? When we dealt with apostles, we dealt with the idea of authority. And we dealt with the New Testament canon being complete. When we deal with prophets, we deal with authority and we deal with inerrancy. But when we deal with evangelists, we're dealing with authority and ability. It's authority for no other reason than this. Every one of these offices is going to have authority. Why? Because it's God's Word and that's where the authority lies. The authority lies in His Word. If God has spoken, it's authoritative and He's telling you the truth about everything. Therefore, His truth stands far and above 
anything else that this world would want to teach us or how else we would seek to think. This is why we're told uh, not to rely on our own hearts. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Everybody remember that? Acknowledge Him in all your ways and He'll do what? He'll make your path straight. Why? Because His Word is triumphant over all those things. So when we deal with this, the issue is authority because the Word is involved. It's a Word-centered office. But it's also the ability. What can God's Word do? Let me share with you some passages real quick. Number one, Romans 10, 17. If you want to just jot them down. You don't have to turn there. What is the Word of God able to do? Faith comes from what? Hearing. That means that there's got to be someone dispensing the gospel in order for it to be heard. How do people have faith? They have faith in the fact that they've heard something. And hearing, it's got to be something in particular. The Word of Christ. It's about Jesus. It's about proclaiming our Savior. That's where it comes from. So what is the ability of the Word? The ability of the Word is the fact that faith is generated at the moment that the Word of Christ is dispensed to people. It's not that people, I think I'm going to believe today. That's not what happens. Well, I think I'm going to choose Jesus today. No. Is that the evidence about Christ is put in front of them. And now they can make that choice because they have something substantive of which to place full conviction in. That is the Word of Christ. How about the next one? John 5.24. This is an excellent assurance verse. You should use this every time to help new believers with assurance of salvation. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. How does that person get from a destination of death to a destination of life? One way, the Word and their response of faith. That's what the Word is able to do. The power is not in the evangelist. The power is not because he closes his eyes, raises his hands up in a V, and breathes really deep until he's on an oxygen high. That's not what makes an evangelist powerful. What makes an evangelist powerful is the Word of which is dispensing. This is why the abuse of this is manipulating the Gospel to make it more palatable. Because then you've got a lot of people that have trusted in something other than the fact that they need a Savior because they are a sinner. That is the gospel message. Someone had to die for you. And they offer you salvation full and free. What is the Word of God able to do? Next verse. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ephesians 1.13 In Him. Now, trivia question. Who's Him? Jesus. It's Christ. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, so you have to hear it, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You know what that tells you? Is that the Word is the way that the Holy Spirit comes into someone's life. You hear the Word, you respond in faith, Holy Spirit immediately takes up residence, starts building His house in your spirit. Done. How about this last one here? 1 Peter 1.23 For you've been born again. How'd that happen? Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Does everybody recognize that the gospel message is alive? And that's what it does. 
The gospel message is alive, and when we impart it to people, we are imparting life to them, and when they believe, they get eternal life. It is all about bringing the dead to life. Let me ask you a question. How are they going to hear if we won't tell them? How are we going to know who to tell if we're not relying on the Holy Spirit to lead us as Philip was led? Does that mean everybody in here is an evangelist as far as the office is concerned? No. No. I believe that every church needs a church evangelist in order to lead us in evangelism and to encourage evangelism. And as your pastor, I have very much the personal responsibility to be doing evangelism all the time, every opportunity. But it doesn't change the fact that of all the things Jesus Christ could have said, He told us, go, make disciples. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Tell them my word. Be my witnesses. Tell them about me. Let's pray. Because of your word, we see that the evangelist is an office for the church. And Lord, we need an evangelist. If it is a gift that you have given that is word-centered, then we pray, Father, that you would bring us an evangelist. But Lord, remind us, we have the great opportunity in order to dispense the Word of God, to talk about Christ and Him crucified for sinners, to share eternal life with every person we come in contact with. For some of us, that might be very scary. We don't have to know all the answers. Father, we're thankful You do. Father, we pray that You would give us opportunities to lead people to Christ. Make us sensitive to your spirit and where he opens the doors. It's one of those things where we just don't want to teeter into guilt. We always have this attitude, well, I should be sharing Christ with people. This is not to be a burdensome thing. Father, relieve us of that needless guilt and instead fill us with joy. Even Philip, leaving Jerusalem, understanding that persecution had just happened and Stephen had been killed, still wanted to tell people about Christ. Father, you've been gracious to save us. And I pray, Father, you use us as a mouthpiece to bring salvation to others, to take them by the hand and to lead them to the foot of the cross. We pray that in Jesus' name.